Well, good morning. I ask that you would open your Bibles to the book of Malachi, the small four-chapter book of Malachi. If you don't know where Malachi is at in the Bible, you have one of two ways of finding it. You can go to your table of contents in the front of the Bible. Uh, that will tell you what page you can find the book of Malachi on. Or if you uh, like going on an adventure, start looking for the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, probably about uh, 60% of the way through the Bible, you'll find those four uh, Gospel narrative books. Uh, go back, if you're uh, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, take a detour back to the left, and you'll find right at the book of Matthew, at the beginning of the New Testament, just one page back is the book of Malachi. We're going to be in Malachi chapter 1 this morning. Now, we're in the third uh, week in our series looking at this last of the Old Testament books. Uh, in week one, we learned about Malachi, the man and the message. We learned that Malachi uh, and the Israelites lived during a time of waiting. We know that they had just come back from uh, the Babylonian exile. They had been captives to an invading army. And they find themselves back in Jerusalem and beginning to begin to rebuild their lives uh, back in their homeland. We learned in week one this was a time of transition. There wasn't a lot going on. This was a time of uh, waiting. And in fact, Israel, it seems, was bored with God. There weren't miracles going on. Those had finished up with the, the likes of Elijah and Elisha. There weren't the great uh, men of faith and men of renown like Moses and Gideon. This was a time where uh, kings uh, weren't known about very much because Solomon and David and Saul were long past. This was a time of quietness. This was a time where people said, has God forgotten us? Has God left us? Well, this morning we find ourselves in that time of waiting again. We find ourselves in a time of transition waiting in between the two markers of Christ's first coming and the second coming of Jesus Christ. We don't see the acts of the apostles like we saw in the book of Acts and in the pastoral epistles. We don't see uh, the great men of renown, men of faith, the pillars that the Word of God teaches about like Paul and Peter, James and John. We don't see them. And we begin to ask as we follow Christ, as we pursue Christ, we begin to ask the question, is God still around? Is, are His promises still for us to receive? And just like in Malachi's day, we find ourselves being busy with other things than the things of God. We find ourselves busy with community life instead of church life, with the life of self instead of the life that Christ has called us to, the life and the Savior and this is what's going on in Malachi's day. We find Malachi sharing the word of the Lord that God shared with him. And he starts, as we learned last week, speaking about the love and the hatred, if you will, of God. And we talked about the in incredible emphasis of God's love and God's love for his people, that we should embrace that way. We should glory in that and be excited about the love that God has for us. But we must realize that even within the love of God, we must always recognize that within the attributes of God are his wrath and his judgment. And as we learned about the city and the area of Edom, we learned that God uh, allowed judgment and destruction to fall upon a sinful people. And what a reminder for us as God's people to be found in the love of God, 
Because the Bible says nothing can separate us from that love that is found in Christ Jesus. But to live in light of that and pursue that and embrace that. Because if we don't, we know that the Bible speaks of judgment as a result of sin and consequences that come as a result of that type of life. Well, this morning we come to Malachi 1, verse 6. And we're going to just land, we're going to camp at verse 6 for the rest of the time. Now, Malachi 1.6 is the beginning of the second argument that God has with his people. We know that uh, he had his first argument when he says, I have loved you. And the people say, how have you loved us? And that was the first argument where he talks about his covenant love for the people of Israel. But second, we see, is Malachi 1.6. And that's where I want us to look at this morning. I'm going to give us a context. Malachi chapter 1. We're going to start at the beginning of the book. We're going to go to verse 11. So it asks, as our tradition, that you would stand for the reading of God's Word. And let's look to this text together. Malachi 1, starting in verse 1. An oracle, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, the Lord says? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And I have turned his mountains into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may rebuild, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of God. You will see it with your own eyes and say, Great is the Lord even beyond the borders of Israel. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me? Says the Lord Almighty. It is you, O priest, who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? You have placed defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying the Lord's table is contemptible. When you bring blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Now implore God to be gracious to us with such offerings from your hand. Will he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light, uh, so you would not light useless fires on my altar. I'm not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. My name will be great among the nations from the rising to the setting of the sun. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to my name because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father God, you are great among the nations. Father God, you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You are great. You are awesome. You are beyond our wildest imaginations, our greatest thoughts, our deepest desires. None of them can compare to who you are and what you've done for us. So, Lord, we thank you this morning. We thank you for what you've done. And we glory in what you've done as we've sung the great hymn, To God be the glory, great things you have done. 
Lord, we rejoice today in the goodness of our God. We rejoice in the mercy of our God, the care and concern of our God. But Lord, we also praise you for all of the wonderful attributes that make you who you are. And Lord, we rejoice that you've allowed us to know you. You're a transcendent God, but you are a God who has come to us in the ascending of your Son to be one of us. So Lord, we thank you that we can know you, that we can embrace you, and that we can live for you to the glory of your name. Lord, let us have that desire to do all, as Paul says, to the glory of God. Because you deserve it, you require it, And Lord, it is our greatest desire to bring that glory to you, for there is none like you in all the world. And all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Today we deal with the glory of God. God is going to speak to the priests of Malachi's day, and he's going to say, You have forgotten my glory. You have forgotten who I am and what I'm all about. You have forgotten my renown and my fame. As I began to think about glory, I began to think about what does it mean glory? What does it mean uh, to have glory? A definition of glory is uh, an object of great honor and praise or distinction accorded by common consent meaning others agree with you, that there is an idea that you, if you are a part of being glorious, would be something that is great and honorable and praiseworthy. Another one was saying that it's a highly praiseworthy asset, a majestic beauty, a splendor and resplendence. As I began to think about this idea of glory, we find so many times that we as people pursue glory for ourselves. How many of you have ever been around an individual who it's all about them? It's all about their accolades. It's all about how much they make. It's all about their golf score or 401k package. It's all about how great their family is. It doesn't take us very long to grow tired of an individual like that. It doesn't take us long to uh, grow weary in listening to someone speak about themselves and the glory that they believe that they have. I'm not sure how many of you followed uh, yesterday, but millions of dollars were spent yesterday while you were going on on your Saturday uh, day of activities. We know, if you're a sports fan, that the NFL draft took place yesterday. Millions of dollars were spent on uh, young men who have all the potential in the world who may or may not live up to those abilities. And while millionaires are made, the sad thing is, is that egos are made as well. As each of those men come up, they run the risk of having their heads and their uh, their thoughts about who they are grow bigger and bigger. Just a couple years ago, they were snot-nosed kids. I would never say that to them to their face, but snot-nosed kids in high school. And yet now people are, are clamoring for their autographs. They're clamoring for their jerseys. And glory becomes an issue of pride and a place of envy in the hearts of many of them. Well, as I was thinking about that, I I was on ESPN just checking in on on, uh, how the draft was going, seeing how our lovable bears uh, would do in that draft. And as I came to ESPN, they had the uh, 10 worst quarterback drafts of all time. 
And I began to think about, well, I wonder if, if any of the Bears picks, and I had forgotten about 1999. Some of you remember the name Cade McNown, otherwise known as Cade McClown. Okay? That's a broke, it's my heart speaking, sorry, as a Bears fan. But Cade McNown was hyped as one of the best quarterbacks in the 1999 draft. And ESPN says he was one of the worst draft picks of all time. Was it because he didn't know how to pass? No. Was it because he didn't know how to run? No. Was it that he was out of shape? No. But the reason why he struggled only to serve four years as an NFL quarterback, even though he was given a $6.2 million signing bonus, completely guaranteed, the reason why he was a failure as an NFL quarterback was because the people said he had an ego. It was all about his glory. One day when he was finishing up uh, a game and post uh, interviews, it was said that uh, you had a lot of incomplete passes, Cade. And he said, it wasn't my fault. It was because my arm is so strong that the wide receivers couldn't catch up to my passes. That's a bold statement. Now, I want to I be careful because I don't know Cade McNown. I don't know him personally, and God may be working in his life and, and be changing him, and I do not want to, and I please, uh, I hope that you don't feel like I'm defaming his character. But they said this guy would have been great. This guy would have been a wonderful asset to the team. In fact, one time, uh, Dick Duran, the coach, was approached by three-quarters of the offense who said, if you send Cade back out on the field, we will not play. How would you feel about that? It wasn't about his abilities. It was about him pursuing his glory. There's a lot of us that are like Cade this morning. It's about us. It's like the old or the newer country music song uh, that a, a man has written. It's all about me. It's all about I. It's about number one. It's about me. And some of you are sitting there today and it's all about you. It's all about who you are and what you want, and you'll run over anybody. You won't be a team player. You'll pursue whatever you want because it is about who you are and what you want. And before you think that I'm being judgmental, I struggle with the same sin as well. But you know what? The reason why that's a problem is because the Bible says that the only one who receives glory, the only one who receives honor, the only one who receives preferential treatment is God and God alone. In fact, in uh, the book of Psalm, uh, Psalm uh, 29, 2 says, Give to the Lord the glory due His name. The glory. I want you to know something. God is all about His glory. And before you begin to think that God's some megalomaniac who desires praise for Himself, get your mind off of your glory and remember that God deserves all the glory that every creature and every plant and every animal and every part of creation and all the universe would give Him. He deserves that and so much more. God deserves the glory that is due to His name. Why is that? Well, we look through Scripture and we see that God is about His glory. Jonathan Edwards, uh, pastor from uh, North America uh, in the uh, uh, 16- and 1700s, wrote this uh, essay, The end for which God created the world. The end which God created the world. And it was all about God's pursuit 
of His glory. God is pursuing His glory, and we see that throughout Scripture. I want to have you put your finger in Malachi 1, and we're going to go on a very quick jet tour through the glory of God in Scripture. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1 for a moment to your right. Go to your right. Uh, About midway through the New Testament, you're going to find the book of Ephesians. It'll be around Galatians, Ephesians, and Philippians, right there in the middle of those two books. Ephesians chapter 1. Starting in verse 4. For He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love He predestined us to be adopted as His sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will. Why did He do all that? Why did He save us? Why did He call us out to be His children? It says in verse 6, to the praise of His glorious grace. God's grace is glorious. It's glorious because we don't deserve it. We can't merit it. And yet God gives it. Turn your Bibles to Isaiah for a moment, all the way back into the Old Testament. In the middle part of the Old Testament, you'll find the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter uh, 49. Isaiah is speaking about the choice of Israel to be God's people and to serve God through their works and acts. And look at what he says in Isaiah 49.3 of the selection of God's sovereign choice for Israel. He says, uh, he has made my mouth in verse 2 like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant Israel in whom I will display my splendor. My splendor. What is that? My glory. God chose Israel to show and demonstrate his glory. Turn to uh, Isaiah 48 for a moment. Isaiah 48, just you may have to turn a page. Isaiah 48 verses 9 through 11. We see a restoration, the restoration that these people had from exile. We see it in Isaiah 48 verses 9 through 11. For my own sake, I delay my wrath. For the sake of my praise, I hold it back from you so as not to cut you off. See, I have refined you, though not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do this. What's his sake? In one translation, it's his namesake, his glory. Why did he do what he did for Israel? Why did he bring them out of captivity? The reason why is that his name would be glorified. All throughout Scripture, we see it not just in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament. In Psalm 106, 7 and 8, it says that he delivered the Israelites out of Egypt for his glory. We know that Jesus Christ, when he came, was called the King of Glory. We also see in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, that we are to do all things as Christians for what? For the glory or to the glory of God in heaven. We know that the second coming would be happening in glory. In 2 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10, it says that he will come in glory. We know also that the uh, glory of God 
will be what will light the heavenly kingdom. In Revelation 21, 23, it says, We will have no need for light because the very glory of God will shine upon us and be our light for all eternity. God is about His glory. God pursues His glory. He rejoices in His glory. But not only does He do that, He wants us to notice His glory. And notice this, He demands that we respond to His glory. It's not about us. It's not about our stats. It's not about who we are, whether we're a professional quarterback or we are uh, a, a preacher in Sugar Grove. It is all about God, and it's not about us. So what do we see uh, this morning? We see a second message from God about the glory of God. And God, excuse me, points out to the priests, you have forgotten who I am. You have stopped pursuing my glory. And in verse 6, we are going to see three attributes of this conversation, if you will, that articulate what God is trying to get across. God is all about His glory. In fact, it is so prevalent, one of the attributes of God is His glory. Now you say, how can glory be an attribute? I like what Wayne Grudem says in his Systematic Theology book, where he lists over 20 different attributes of God, His omnipotence, His omniscience. We see about the love of God. We see uh, the grace of God. All these wonderful attributes of who God is and, and what He's all about. And at the very end, Wayne Grudem writes in and, uh, number 22, glory of God. Now he says this is not particularly an attribute, but if you take all the other attributes together and create a mathematical formula, A plus B, C, D, and E, all these attributes equal the glory of God. Why do we glory in God? Because of everything of who He is and what He's done and how He responds to you and I. He deserves glory. But the people in Malachi's day weren't giving it to Him, especially the priests. They were missing it. They had forgotten to give Him glory. And we fall prey to that as well. You say, how do I fall prey to not giving God glory? We do it when the Word of God is not a priority in our life, when worship becomes fake, when it becomes just a task that we do, when we find ourselves not serving with a joyful heart, instead using it as a, a way of trying to appease an angry God. God wants His people to glory in Him. God wants Christians everywhere to respect Him, to revere Him, and praise Him because He is the embodiment of glory. So how do we see God deal with this? Look at verse 6 this morning. Malachi verse one, or chapter 1, verse 6, speaks about a special relationship. God begins this argument, if you will, dealing with a special relationship. Look at what the text says in verse 6 of Malachi 1. Malachi 1, verse 6. Let me get there myself. It says, A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me? God speaks to His people, and He gives two examples or two types of relationships that He has with the people, including and especially the priest. First one he brings up, he says, I'm a father, which reminds the people of Israel that they are sons. Write that in your outline, that God speaks of his people as sons. 
Now, this is important for them to understand. This is not the first time that they have been articulated to, or God has not, has articulated to them that they are sons of His. In Exodus chapter 4, write that in your outlines. Exodus chapter 4, Moses is speaking uh, to Pharaoh. And in Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, this is what uh, Moses is to tell Pharaoh. He says the following, Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go so he may worship me. But if you refuse to let him go, since you refuse to let him go, I will now kill your firstborn son. God defines Israel as a son. We see this in Deuteronomy chapter 32. Deuteronomy 32. This is what Deuteronomy 32 says. Verse 6, 32, 6. Is this the way you repay the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Is not God your Father? Is He not your Creator who made you and formed you? Throughout the Scriptures, time after time, God reveals Himself that they are children of God. They were called the people of God, the Israelites, the children of God. They had a special relationship. Well, just be when you think that it's just Israel who had that special relationship, the New Testament speaks about this idea of sons. Turn your Bibles to John for a moment. John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verse 12. This is speaking about the Word becoming flesh. John is opening his gospel by speaking of Jesus who came being God while putting flesh on. And it says, uh, He came to that which was not his, uh, to that which was His own, but His own did not receive Him. Yet to all who receive Him, meaning Jesus, to those who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent or of a human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Israel isn't the only one that can call God their father. In fact, the New Testament says that we can cry out to God saying, Abba, Father, Daddy, Daddy. We can go to Him as I go to my own earthly father and pursue a conversation with Him, pursue grace and mercy in my time of need. We too are the sons and daughters of God. The second thing he brings up is that we are servants. Servants. Look at Malachi 1.6. He says, Father, and then he speaks about a master. If God is the master, then we are his servants. Now we know that the Israelites would have understood that, that God throughout his time declared himself as the master. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 12, it speaks about the service that Israel would have to their master, God. In Exodus 9, 1, let me read that for you. Exodus 9, 1 says the following. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say to him, this is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews say, let my people go that they may worship and serve me. 
God had a desire not to just have a special relationship with these people, but Israel not only had that special relationship, but they had a special responsibility. Israel was called to serve God, to make his glory known to all the nations. Well, likewise, we are called to serve God as well. God has called us to be his children, but God has also called us to serve him. In fact, it says in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14, if you want to turn there for a moment, the book of Hebrews at the end of the New Testament. Turn there for a moment. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14. It says in verse 14, we'll go with verse 13. First, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a Heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, what we have been saved by, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our conscience from acts that lead to death? Why? Why would God save us? Why would God uh, cleanse our consciences? Look at what it says in verse 14. So that we may serve the living God. We have a special relationship with God. And because of that special relationship, it gives us a responsibility to serve God. This responsibility should be viewed as a privilege. These priests in these days did not look at serving God as a privilege. The question I have for all of us today is, do we view the service of God as a privilege? Do we see it as an opportunity to honor and bring glory and praise to God, no matter what you're doing, whether it's singing on the stage, whether it's holding babies, whether it's serving your neighbors and your friends with Christ's love, however you serve the Lord, as you worship Him, do you see it as a privilege or as a drudgery? These uh, priests saw it as a drudgery. And as a result of that, God's going to deal with them. We're going to learn next week on why they had allowed it to become a drudgery and what kind of actions took place. What does it mean, sons and servants? What are we to apply to that? There are two things I want to apply to that today. Because God speaks of his children as, uh, as his people, as sons and servants, it puts us into a position, first of all, a high position, As a result of what God's relationship is with his people, it involves a high position. We know that God is speaking to the priests. The priests had a high position, one of the highest positions in all of Israel. The leader, they were leaders. They were the overseers of, of what took place in the spiritual realm when it came to Israel. They were the instructors of the law. The priests were the judges in the judicial matters. They were the pundits in politics. They were, if you will, highfalutin people. They were people that were known. You would know who a priest was in your area because he held a high position. The second thing we see in these priests is that they were to serve with, uh, within a holy position. A holy position. Because they were priests, we know in Old Testament times that the priest was, in fact, the mediator between God and man. He was the one that oversaw the temple sacrifices. He was the one that made sure that the people's spiritual lives were centered on God and God alone. Well, what's any difference with us as Christians? In fact, in 1 Peter chapter 2, 8 and 9, it tells us that we are a holy nation. We are a chosen people, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. But then he says something else. We are a royal 
priesthood. You and I are priests. As followers of Jesus Christ, we are now priests. One of the things that we hold to in the evangelical church is that we hold to the priesthood of all believers. Every one of you, if you've called yourself a child of God, if you have bowed the knee to Jesus Christ and serve him, you serve God as a priest to God. You serve him. And so what does that mean? We have a high position. People are looking to us. Our children are looking to us. People within the church are looking to us. People outside the church are looking and wanting to see how we respond. We hold a high position. The Bible says that uh, we hold the keys of the kingdom. The Bible says that whatever we bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever we loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. We've got authority here on earth, not because of ourselves, because God has given us the authority to give people the words of everlasting life. But it's a holy position as well. The Bible says that we are to live in a way that is worthy of the calling. There is the high position, Ephesians 4.1. But it also says that we are to live holy lives as well. Turn in your Bibles for a moment to 1 Peter. 1 Peter. If you're in the book of Hebrews, keep moving to your right to 1 Peter. Your fingers are going to be hurting at the end of this message. 1 Peter chapter 4. I'm sorry, 1 Peter chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 14. This is what Peter tells Christians and tells us today. In verse 13, he says, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Christians, be ready. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Christ Jesus is revealed. As obedient children, there's the child analogy, do not conform yourself to the evil desires that you had when you lived in ignorance. Here's the holy living. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all that you do. For it is written, "Because be holy because I am holy holy. Without looking at anybody else this morning, can you say without a shadow of a doubt that you are living a holy life? That in the quietness of your uh, closed door, in the quietness of when no one is around, are you living the holy life that God has called you to? God was condemning these men. He was uh, giving them a uh, sentence of judgment because they were not living up to the high and holy position. Are we as believers living to that high and holy position? It involves a special relationship. But notice what it goes on next. A serious rebuke. Look at what happens. Malachi 1.6. It says, If I am a father, if I am a master, where is my honor? Where is my respect? Circle that word if, if you circle or underline in your Bible, circle that word. That is important because God is saying, I am this. And because I'm this, where is my honor? Where is my respect? When we live lives absent of God, God isn't sitting there saying, oh, that's too bad. Tim doesn't want to live for me. Oh, well, we didn't get that one, so we'll just kind of move on. The Bible says God is a jealous God. And if you're not living for God, then God is angry because you're living for yourself 
And God says, I'm not going to let anybody else have my glory. I'm not going to let anybody else have my fame or my renown or take credit for something I've done. So when you live for self, God gets angry. He gets upset because he's jealous for his glory. He wants the glory for himself. And so he rebukes them. He says, where is it? Where is it? Now notice the rebuke involved a relationship that was dishonored. Father. He says, if I'm a father, where is my honor? This would have been a slap in the face to the Israelites of that day. Because they would know that one of the Ten Commandments that was given in the law of Moses was to what? Honor your mother and father. And God is saying, I'm a father. You honor your parents at home. You give them respect. You give them the due honor that they deserve. But where is mine? Where did it go? natural loss as a child, whether they believe in God or not, is to obey their parents. No one will fight with that. Even heathen philosophers during that day, I like this, I'm going to tell my children this as they grow older, heathen philosophers uh, from Persia spoke about parents being household gods that were to be revered and worshipped. Tell your teenage daughter and son that. Say, I heard today that uh, there was a, a sect of heathen philosophers that said parents were gods of the house. And yet here are the people of God serving the one and true God, and they don't revere him. They dishonor the relationship that they have. God's position in their life held little stock to what they were doing. They, they didn't worry about what God had going on in their life. They weren't concerned about that. But notice the second relationship, master. He says, where's my respect? Now, a master, we would, would assume that is a boss. We would assume that that is someone who has, uh, has you uh, in a place of service. You are to do what they say. They are the authority in your life. Now, we lose some of that application or that understanding when we look at our bosses because, of course, we in America have unions. We have uh, workers' rights. But in Israel's day, if you were a slave, the master owned you. The master was your authority. The master was your lifeline to successful living. And God says, I'm your master. And yet you honor your earthly master more than you honor me. You serve him with greater diligence than you serve me. Where is that respect that I deserve? Where is my place of ownership in your life? What an appalling sight for these people. Here, the people and priests of God. Think about it. The priests of God who were to do uh, the job of bringing the glory about to the people. And they're more worried about themselves and the things of the world than they are to serving God. Well, how do we dishonor our relationship with God? We do it when we don't honor Him as Father. I remember one time I, I spoke flippantly to my father. And my dad, and I, again, he's going to get in trouble with DCFS one of these times. My dad took care of it so quickly and so severely. And the words that he gave me after that severe punishment that will go unspoken, he said, I am your father. Don't you ever speak to me like that again. And you know what? Haven't. Won't. Pity anybody who does. But you know what? I do that with my earthly father. But many times I speak flippantly of my God. I think flippantly of Him. Well, what, 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 is God, what does God matter in my life in this decision? 
in my small group, we're studying the book of James and, and it, we learned this last week about uh, planning without understanding and realizing that God's will for our life may be something different. Don't start going and planning, do this and I'll do that. But say, if it, the Lord wills, I will go do this and I will do that. And what that was talking about is the submission of God in our lives. Whether you're a college student, whether you're pursuing a new job, whether you're thinking about doing something with the family, it should always be funneled through, he's my father. And I should seek to understand what my father has to say on this subject. We dishonor the relationship when we don't allow God to be our guide and to be our father figure in our lives, both spiritually, emotionally, physically, in all aspects of life. But how about master? We disgrace uh, and dishonor the name of God because we say, God, you're not my master. My younger brother, when I would tell him that he needed to do something when we were children, my younger brother would always say, you're not the boss of me. You're not the boss of me. He still says it today. You're not the boss of me. And yet that's what we say to God. God says, do this. And we say, who are you? You're not the boss of me go do that. No, I'm not going to listen to you, God. I'm going to go my way. My way's funner. My way brings more happiness. My way is easier instead of pursuing God. And what does God do? Folks, he rebukes them. And he rebukes us today if that is the way that we view God, if that is the way that we pursue God in this relationship. But notice there's a revelation of God that is despised. Look at verse 6 again. He says, if I'm a father, where's the honor due me? If I'm a master, where's the respect due me? Notice what he says. Says the Lord Almighty. Let's stop there for a moment. The Lord Almighty. We need to understand the youth group is going through a series right now on the names of God. And if you've ever done a study on the names of God, Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Rafi, all kinds of different names of God. We understand the character of God. We understand what the name is all about. Many of you know that my name is Timothy, Tim, but you don't know why I'm named Tim. If you know Tim in the Bible, Tim was a man, a boy who was born from a mixed family. My parents, my mother, who is American, English, if you will, and uh, my father is from Iraq. He's a Syrian. And we know that Timothy had a mixed family. My name, Daniel, middle name, Daniel, was that in light of everything that was going on in the world, that their son would be a person of prayer. And that even if the world came down upon me, that I would rather be consumed by lions than fall prey to the pressures of the world. But you know, I did that with my own sons. I did that with Noah because Noah found, was found in grace with God. And God showed grace upon Noah, even though the world went to hell in a handbasket, Noah served God. We know that uh, Joshua was one who took over for Moses. And I wanted my second son to be named Joshua, to be a great leader. Someone said, well, why did you name Luke? Luke, I want my son to be a doctor. Luke was a doctor. (laughs) Names mean something. God's name means something very special. The word Lord Almighty is Adonai Saveah. Lord of hosts is declared seven times in chapter one alone. You think God's trying to get something across to these people? Listen to my name. My name reveals my character. 
This is who I am. This word, uh, Adonai Saveah, literally means, uh, it's used several times in the Old Testament. One time in the book of Judges, commander of the armies of Israel. In another place in the Old Testament, commander of heavenly hosts. In another place, ruler of sun, moon, and stars. What is God doing? He's giving his resume. He's saying, do you understand who I am? I am your great God. I am the creator of the universe. I am the Lord of the heavenly hosts. Listen and revere me because I'm something special. Robert Otley wrote this. I like this. The Lord Almighty literally is a title of memories and triumphs. So what is God saying? What is he saying to the people? He's saying something we need to hear as well this morning. He says, remember me. Remember what I've done. Remember where I've brought you. Remember who I am. If you learn anything today, remember who God is. Pursue who God is. Because God says in the beginning of the chapter, he says, look at what I did to Edom. I made them a wasteland, but I have loved you and I've protected you. Why have I done it? Verse 5 says that my name will be great even beyond the borders of Israel. God says, I serve you, I love you, I t- uh, you serve me and you love me. Why? So that my glory will be made known through all the earth. We are to honor him. We are to revere him. Well, what's their response? Let's look at the response. There's a sad response. It says that they show contempt for the name of God. Look at what it says. It is you, O priest, who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? Let's deal with this word contempt first. It literally means to despise, to hold with disdain, to find despicable. They hold the name of God to be something despicable. They hold it with uh, an anger with a despising nature to their thoughts about the name of God. Do you despise God this morning? Maybe it's because something has happened in your life where you find yourself saying, I don't like God. God's not for me. God is nothing. He's been a terrible noose around my neck that I cannot get away from. He's a killjoy in my life. I despise the name of God. This is what the people were doing because God confronts them on it. Now understand this word contempt in the Hebrew is shown that it's ongoing. It's continually. The tense there tells us it's ongoing. You continually show contempt for my name. It's not a one-time offense. It's ongoing. We must be very careful that we do not show contempt for the name of God. So how do they respond? How do the priests of all people respond? How have we done this? It's like my five-year-old. I didn't do that, Daddy. I'm looking at it right now, son. You did. I watched you. I didn't do that. Your eyes must be fooling you, Daddy. What are the children of Israel saying? God, you must have it something wrong. You're looking at the wrong person. We, How have we shown you contempt? How have we done that? Well, it leads to some things. These people are clueless. Why are they clueless? Because they have hard hearts. They have hard hearts. They had grown unaffected. They had grown unappreciative of what God had done. God had brought them out of captivity. Remember the passage in Jeremiah? For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to prosper you 
and to give you a bright hope and a future. Where does that come from? We use that verse all the time, and we need to understand context of that passage. The passage right before that is Jeremiah is told the captivity is going to end in 70 years. And so what is God saying? After 70 years are done, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Your captivity is going to be done here real quick. It's going to be done real fast. 70 years will go like that. And I have plans for you, says the Lord. The people had forgotten that. They had forgotten the plans God had for them. And as a result of that, their hearts grew hard. You know, we can do that as well. Stop listening to what the Word of God says. Stop engaging yourself in community of other believers and find yourself pursuing other things and your heart will grow hard. The Bible says that this is called grieving the Spirit in the book of 1 Thessalonians, that we can allow the Spirit to be grieved in our lives. The second thing that we see is there was hypocritical hearts. We know from history, Malachi was the begin, Malachi, the time of Malachi was the beginning of the sects that we know of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. We've heard of those before, haven't we? This was the time where they got started. This is where the clubs got together and they said, you know what? God's not doing much in our time. So what should we do? We should start some programs. Isn't that what we do as Christians? We get tired of waiting on God. So what do we do? We start some programs. And so they start programs, Pharisees, Sadducees. And what were the Pharisees and Sadducees all about? They weren't about the heart of God. They were about the heart of religion. Do this, 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 and this. Make sure your rope goes this far down. Make sure your tassels don't do this and don't do that. And make sure you don't eat this and you don't pursue that. And you know what happens when you're all done with that? That equals holy living. And Jesus talked about this. Jesus despised this of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He said, you're whitewashed tombs. You're open graves. Why? Why are you all that? Because you pursue the outside instead of pursuing the inside. So what were these people pursuing? They were saying, well, what does it look? We look good. How can you say we show contempt for your name? We look good. We're respecting you. Look at all these things that we hold to. We as Christians have to be so very careful that we do not fall to hypocritical living. Because as we live as hypocrites, we walk in here on Sunday morning and we say everything's great. To God be the glory. Great things he has done. And all week long we do nothing to live out that wonderful hymn that we've just sung. But we say, I look good. I don't curse like my neighbor. I don't cheat like my friends do. I make sure that I give a little to the Lord. What, what is left to do? They had hypocritical hearts. And in this kind of life, there was no glory given to God. So what are we to do? Don't close your Bibles yet. I want to close here in a minute and a half. How do we give God glory? How do we live differently than the people in Malachi's day? You want to live, live a life that is full of God's glory? Here's a, a couple things. Write these down in your outline. How do I begin to live, God's live out God's glory in my life? Starting today. Number one, bear fruit of Christ's likeness. Live like Jesus. You live like Jesus, God receives glory. I will tell you it happens every time. Live like Jesus, God receives glory. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about that. Number two, do good works. Do good works. Don't do good works to appease God. Do what God has called you to do in gratitude for God, uh, for what He has done. Number three, be sexually pure. 
There's no greater way in our, in our lives today in the sex-crazed America that we live in to show and to give God glory than being sexually pure individuals. Whether you are single, a teenager, or a college student, whether you are in your marriage, in the 50th year of marriage, give God glory in your sexual purity. Number th- uh, four, confess your sins. If we understand the glory of God, if we understand that we are to give God glory in all that we do, we should glory in the grace and mercy that God gives. We are to be confident to approach that throne of grace with confidence. Why are we to approach that throne of grace? To share our sins before our God. We need no other mediator between God and man now because we have Jesus Christ. Number five, live by faith, not by sight. You want to show the glory of God in your life? Start living out of faith, not by the things that you see. Allow your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers to see you taking steps of faith to God. He'll receive glory. Next we see proclaim His Word. You want to give God glory? Tell others about what He has done. The Bible says that we are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a chosen people belonging to God. I've mixed all those up. That we may declare the praises of Him who's called us out of darkness and brought us into His wonderful light. Declare and proclaim the Word of God. The next one, pursue Christ in your suffering. When you suffer, suffer for God. Pursue God in your suffering. Don't curse God. Love God. Pursue God. Praise God in those times of suffering. You'll give God glory. Do His will. Don't do what you want to do. Do the will of God. Confess His Son as Lord. Don't confess anybody else as Lord. Confess Jesus Christ as Lord. And finally, hope in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Glory. Give God glory in that. So how do we do that? One final verse. It says in the Old Testament, and let me close with this, and this be our motto for this week, in giving God the glory, because it's not to us, the writer says, not to us, but to God and God alone be the glory. Live lives that pursue the glory of God. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we praise you this morning. We praise you for who you are. We praise you for what you've done. And Lord, we glory this morning in who and what you are for us. And who you are set apart from everything. You are the glorious King of kings and Lord of lords. Oh God, that we would grab a hold of that. Oh God, that we would pursue that. That we would uh, pursue that you would receive the praise. That you would receive the glory and the honor. That it wouldn't just be as some athletes say and, and, and music people. Well, God, you receive all the glory. And then we talk about our own accolades and our own fame. But Lord, that we would live and do all things to the glory of God. Father, I pray that husbands and fathers would live to the glory of God. Wives and mothers would live to the glory of God. That our young people would live to the glory of God. That our children would revere their father in heaven by honoring and respecting their parents at home. Father, that Village Bible Church would be known as a church that brings glory to you. We don't want glory, God. We don't want the praise and the honor. Let it never be said that we've built it for ourselves, but for you and you alone. We love you and we praise you and we give all the glory to you. And all God's people said, Amen.